Welcome and thank you for joining us for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour, the official podcast of the National Association of Health Underwriters. Before we begin, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. The podcast is distributed on these platforms every Friday and is included in NAHU's weekly member-exclusive health policy newsletter, The Washington Update, giving you a head start on your weekly healthcare happy hour. As August recess comes to an end, Congress will be back to work on the two major legislative packages that NHU has been discussing for the past few months, the $1 trillion bipartisan Invest in America Act and the Democrats' $3.5 trillion reconciliation package. On the July 30th edition of the podcast, we discussed the status of these packages prior to August recess. Now, on this week's episode of the Healthcare Happy Hour, NAHU's Vice Presidents of Congressional Affairs, Chris Hartman and John Green, return to discuss what the timeline looks like for passage of these bills and what may be encompassed in the reconciliation package, including perhaps lowering Medicare eligibility age. So welcome back to the podcast, guys. Before we get into details, although reconciliation has been a hot topic for some time, it has been a while since we reviewed the process of reconciliation on the podcast. So could you briefly summarize the process, what it means for Democrats, and what sort of provisions the process permits them to include in this bill? Sure. So reconciliation is a process that can be used once a budget cycle. And what's interesting about it is it's not filibustable. So you don't need 60 votes to pass it in the Senate. This has made it a vehicle that both Democrats and Republicans, when they're running the Senate, want to use. This is how the Trump tax cuts most recently were passed. This is also the process the Democrats used it at the end of last year in order to provide more COVID funding. And now they are working on this process for not only COVID, but the rest of sort of infrastructure, particularly in this case, the human infrastructure. And so in that process, there are certain rules beyond the fact that it's not filibustable. One is the fact that Things that are in reconciliation must affect the either revenue or spending side. So you can't pass anything that is strictly policy oriented or doesn't deal with the revenue of the federal government or the spending of the federal government. That does limit the options on reconciliation. For example, in the last year, in last reconciliation, there were those, particularly among some House Democrats, who wanted to put an increase in the minimum wage into reconciliation. The Senate parliamentarian said that, no, you're not allowed to put that because it does not fall under reconciliation rules under those uh, either revenue or spending things. So the Democrats will have to bring a lot of these ideas to the parliamentarian as the process is going over in the Senate to see what falls under the rules. And she will go and look at past precedents and decide if they they are acceptable under the rules. But that does limit what you can do with reconciliation. This is why in many cases, reconciliation has been used around tax policy in the past because that makes it so clear. These other cases make it much more difficult. So these rules only apply in the Senate, not in the House. You will sometimes see the House pass with other initiatives in there, but it all comes down to the rules of reconciliation in the Senate and what the parliamentarian will allow and and if she will allow all of these different provisions to go forward. 
So early last month, the House narrowly approved a budget resolution to eventually vote on the infrastructure bill. For those who may be confused, what exactly did that resolution do? And what timeline did it establish for these packages moving forward? The budget resolutions set up in place a couple of things. One is you have to pass a budget resolution to get to the reconciliation. What's been happening is at the same time, Democrats have been interested in doing this uh, reconciliation package. There has been a bipartisan infrastructure bill that is going through. It has passed the United States Senate on a vote of 69 votes going forward. So well past the filibustable level. And then the bill comes over to the House. The rule that was put in place in the House passed the budget resolution, which starts the reconciliation process, and does say by the end of September that the hard infrastructure bipartisan bill must be passed in the House. Now, that is not a hard and fast date, but it it does give guidance there. The more moderate Democrats particularly wanted to see the bipartisan infrastructure bill passed now. Uh, This is kind of somewhat of a compromise position of having it passed by the end of September. The leadership wants to see the bipartisan infrastructure bill and reconciliation bill basically get to President Biden's desk at the same time, and they see it as a package. And the progressive side does not want to see the bipartisan infrastructure bill either A, pass, uh, depending on who they are, but also they fear that if the bipartisan infrastructure passes against President Biden's desk, the moderate Democrats won't have any incentive to vote for reconciliation. So they're using it as kind of a leverage. So from the leadership's point of view, they think both is going to need to pass. And the wings of the party are kind of using this as a negotiating tactic within the reconciliation bill. The progressives obviously want to see all sorts of things, including the lowering of the Medicare age that we're going to talk about later. And the moderates want the leverage to sort of reduce the overall price of this package and keep out some of the more controversial big government ideas that have been out there within the budget resolution. The budget resolution itself, beyond um, starting the reconciliation process, does sort of talk about what's on the table for reconciliation and, and provides those instructions to the committees going forward, which is why over this couple of weeks, you see the committees starting to mark up in the House the reconciliation bill. They each have their instructions about how much revenue they need to generate, what they can spend, how much they can spend on. And we'll see that starting over, started this week, and we'll be continuing into next week. So before we begin discussing the reconciliation package in greater detail, have there been any significant changes to the bipartisan so-called sort of pure infrastructure invest act since we last spoke? So the bill looks largely the same since we last spoke. When we spoke, it had not yet passed the Senate, but we were getting very close to getting the final details in there. The bill is not something that people are looking to negotiate on any further. It has passed the Senate, and really, they just need to get that vote in the House. When it comes to health care, there really isn't a lot of health care in there. One provision is a moratorium on the Trump prescription drug rebate until 2023, I also think on that prescription drug rebate, you're actually likely to see a complete repeal of that rebate within the reconciliation package going forward. There are some other tweaks on the Medicare side, but nothing particularly uh, shocking. The only thing I would say about the transportation bill on the healthcare provisions that are in there that we find concerning is the fact that these are used as pay-fors. And in general, I think when it comes to health, good healthcare policy, if healthcare is providing pay-fors or revenue generators, 
We'd rather see that money go back into healthcare. And now it's being used to go into infrastructure. And that just sort of breaks with the way things have been done in the past, because you don't want healthcare to become sort of a piggy bank for other things in the federal government. That starts opening up for fears for us, uh, for John and I, on things like the employer exclusion and allowing the employer exclusion to be basically used to pay for anything out there, healthcare or not, is a big concern of NHU since it really is the backbone of the employer-based healthcare system. So that sort of break in precedence of allowing healthcare to generate revenue for other things and not keep it in the healthcare realm, it is a little bit concerning. So now to talk a bit more about the reconciliation package. As we mentioned already, some Democrats are pushing to include the lowering of Medicare eligibility from age 65 to age 60. This week, NAHU sent an operation shout to all members urging them to contact their legislators and ask that they do not include this provision in the bill. So why is NAHU opposed to this measure? Well, it depends on who you talk to. For some progressive Democrats, it's a way to inch closer to a single payer system. Our concern is manyfold that it breaks down the employer-based system in that if healthier people can move out of their employer coverage, and jump the barrier and directly into Medicare, that employers will lose their healthier risk and leave behind the sicker risk. You know, you know those groups that are experience rated would be harmed by that and rates would go up. So you'd see a deterioration. We don't know if these uh, new entrants would be in a separate pool or if they would be mixed with the older pool and what that would do for premiums for those who are in Medicare already. And so th- it, it really generates more questions, really, than it, it seems simple to just add more people to the program. But you're writing a bill in two weeks that you would normally do through regular order and have hearings and have expert testimony. You know, it took us two years to do the MMA. And I think that this is a very heavy lift. Now, I think there's also a dichotomy, as Chris was alluding to earlier, when he talked about, you know, the moderates versus the progressives. Well, there's also sort of this dichotomy between the Senate and the House. I think that this provision is more central to Senator Sanders and really not necessarily a House priority. Speaker Pelosi has made it clear that she wants to make permanent the increased subsidies. The ACA is sort of a legacy issue for her and everyone anticipates that you know, she won't run again uh, after this term is up. And so I think that's a greater priority for her, as is adding additional benefits, dental vision and hearing, which we will also talk about. Yeah, so you are correct that this provision particularly comes from Senate progressives, Bernie Sanders being the leader of that. They feel that it is widely popular because Medicare is popular, but really this is kind of a backdoor way in getting towards single payer. If we keep lowering that age, you know, 65 down to 60, next time come down to 50, you know, if you keep doing that over time, eventually you just get to single payer and and, and they know that and that's their ultimate goal. I think there's a lot of questions though a lot of people haven't really thought about, and particularly the American public with, with that change in age, because It is true that lowering the age of Medicare is generally popular amongst the American public. And I think there's a lot of questions that get raised that people aren't thinking through. Are we really creating, are we just lowering their age or are we creating a whole separate program? Are we creating a program for people 
from age 60 to 65. Is this something that you would have to buy into, elect into? How does it disrupt the employer-based market? If you start having people leave the employer-based market for Medicare, what do the risk pools look like? Do the healthy people actually go over to Medicare and the sick people stay in their employer plan because their employer plan is often more generous? offering things like vision, dental, and hearing that Medicare doesn't offer. What effects does this have on Medicare Advantage? There are all sorts of questions out there that have gone unanswered about lowering that age. We recently had the Medicare trustees report come out, and it talks about in 2023 that Medicare will will no longer be able to provide 100% of its current benefits. What effect is adding these people into that pool have on Medicare? Are we going to be draining the Medicare program at an even faster rate? And that's why they talk about bringing in outside revenue. So are we really creating a whole new program that isn't Medicare at all? And I think there are lots of concerns that NIHU Schwarzer raises here about lowering that Medicare age that need to be addressed. You know, hospitals being reimbursed at a Medicare rate is something that often is something they can't afford to do and really rely on the employer-based market to make up the rest of their revenue. Will you be looking at the issue of particularly rural hospitals closing if more and more of their market is simply Medicare rate? So I think there's lots of different questions that come into effect when lowering that age, even if the idea when asked in a polling question, and the average American hasn't really given a lot of thought to this, is widely popular of allowing people at 60 to enter into Medicare. So lowering the eligibility age, potentially adding dental, vision, and hearing benefits. Some of these are, as we mentioned, fairly progressive and expensive ideas. As we discussed in the past, this reconciliation package does require the vote of every Democrat in the Senate, including our moderate friends, Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. Senator Manchin actually penned an op-ed last week urging Democrats to pause efforts to pass their reconciliation bill because of his concerns regarding inflation and debt. This concern by Senator Manchin, what do you think it means for the bill and how may it affect what is included or not included? So this is where it gets really interesting. Senator Manchin is asked to hit the pause button and progressives are pushing back on that and saying we need to move full steam ahead. I, I think at the end of the day, they're going to have to come to some agreement on what that top line number is, because even Senator Sinema is not necessarily on board with three and a half trillion. And so that's two Senate members. But, you know, much of what they can do will really hinge on what they can garner from drug pricing negotiations and how far that can take them in terms of their wish list. Senator Manchin did come out with the op-ed, and you've seen since then other conversations around him being interested in more about $1.5 trillion. I think there's lots of questions about what would that $1.5 trillion be made up of? What does the ideal Senator Manchin bill look like? Is there room to negotiate between that $3.5 trillion and $1.5 trillion? That's obviously a very large $2 trillion gap between them. I think at the end of the day, just strategy-wise, some of this is negotiating style on on Manchin's behalf. He does negotiate publicly. He's been well known to negotiate through the media itself, particularly out of all the moderate senators. He's the one who's most well known to negotiate through the media, either an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal like he's done or other publications. 
And I think that is what he's attempting to do is those negotiations sort of in public. Furthermore, you see others negotiating maybe in a more quiet manner. Kirsten Cinema, who we also mentioned, she doesn't do quite as much press around these things except for Arizona press. But you also have Senator Tester, who's also quietly been negotiating with the White House on this. Others within certain areas are also negotiating. I know with the White House and the rest, for example, Senator Menendez from New Jersey, who is very supportive of the pharmaceutical industry, is also doing private negotiations around what the pharmaceutical side of this bill would look like. I think at the end of the day, a reconciliation bill does still pass, mostly because Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema believe it is in their best interest still and want to see a bill pass. I do not think it's going to be a $3.5 trillion bill the way the progressives want to see pass. But as long as everyone in all 50 Senate Democrats still believe it's in their best interest and their constituents' best interest to see a bill pass, one will. I do think between now and then there will be huge fights between the moderate side and that progressive side over what gets into the final bill. You saw a lot of that going on over the budget resolution and passing the infrastructure bill. That was sort of a prelude to this oncoming fight between the two sides. Uh, And remember, you need all 50 Democrats to vote for it. You can only afford to lose three House Democrats to get a bill passed. And so you really do have to agree, get all sides to agree. And the progressives need to ask themselves, are they willing to take a Senator Manchin version of the bill where they're getting some of what they want versus holding out for everything? Because there are no Republicans to vote for this bill. And the ideological gap between a Manchin, a cinema, a tester is very large compared to the Bernie Sanders wing of the world. But that isn't the only issue in terms of what they will spend. It's how they will pay for it, right? That's kind of the other side of the coin is figuring out what can they agree on in terms of pay fors. Yeah, the Biden administration laid out uh, raising the corporate tax rates. There might be some version of corporate tax increases in the end, but it's going to be nowhere close to what the Biden administration laid out in their initial proposal. Those sorts of concerns are very important to people like Kirsten Cinema of Arizona, who have a lot of businesses who are very concerned about the corporate tax rate. Those pay-fors are something we will keep an eye on. I think there's a lot of effort to truly try to get the pay-fors to come from the prescription drug side. And we'll go into other, these other pieces of reconciliation soon. But there are pay-fors that aren't traditional tax raises. For example, the federal government spends lots of money on prescription drugs. And so if you lowered the cost of prescription drugs, you would be lowering and generating revenue in other areas for the federal government. And that's where I think a lot of people would prefer to see it being paid for rather than being paid for by raising taxes in other areas. So in addition to lowering the eligibility age, What are some of the other provisions that you think will be at the center of this conflict between moderates and progressives? The most popular, and remember, there are lots of things in this reconciliation. John and I are just going to address the healthcare issues because we are a healthcare association. But there are lots of things on the table. The most popular one is making the ACA subsidies that were in the American Rescue Plan permanent or near permanent over a 10-year cycle here. Those are wildly popular amongst both the moderate and progressive side of the party. And I think that is the most likely healthcare provision to go into place. After that, there are various healthcare provisions that need to be negotiated Figuring out what to do with the Medicaid population that are in the states that did not expand Medicaid is a very large priority of all Democrats. 
How to do it, I think, is where the, the disagreements between the wings of the party are going to be. The more progressive side of the party would like to see either the counties and cities be allowed to run their own Medicaid programs within that group that did not expand, or allow the federal government to run a Medicaid program that will fill in that gap until you get to the ACA. The more moderate side of the party is much more interested in having the ACA subsidies go down below where they reach today to allow people in Medicaid gap areas to access the ACA and allow the subsidies there to get insurance plans. Now, there are still lots of questions that come about with that. The ACA plans are not usually generally designed for people of lower incomes and their particular needs, uh, concerns, other issues around transportation. The individual market plans historically have not particularly designed well for that market. And so that does sort of have some concerns about how you would go in that direction. The other question that people need to figure out is if you allow the subsidies to go down in certain areas or create a federal Medicaid program, what about the states that did expand Medicaid? Do they decide they want to drop that now and allow the federal government to either run that program or allow the ACA subsidies to cover those people so that they are not doing that? Now, yes, the federal government does pick up most of the tab for Medicaid expansion, but it's still a burden on the states to operate these programs. And so will you create a situation that you now created an incentive to states no longer to do the Medicaid expansion? Those are all sorts of questions that need to be addressed in this Medicaid expansion. The other popular provisions that are out there are prescription drugs and the prescription drugs cost. As I mentioned earlier, this is particularly popular because not only does everyone see lower prescription drug costs, but this also saves money for the federal government and becomes a revenue raiser. You've seen a draft proposal by Senate Finance Committee staff that would essentially take the widen Grassley Medicare proposal for prescription drugs and the provisions that were that, and then also add Medicare negotiating prices for the top 100 extensive drugs out there in the market and allow Medicare to negotiate prices there. Uh, this would create significant savings and lower cost of prescription drugs within the Medicare market. We do have some concerns about that, though. That sort of proposal would only apply to the Medicare market and not the employer market. Do the pharmaceuticals companies start transferring the revenue generators or raise the, essentially the cost of prescription drugs within the employer-based market to make up those differences? Now, apparently the reason the prescription drugs provisions have been drafted this way within the Senate is, again, back to what we were talking about, reconciliation rules, that they believe the parliamentarian will not approve something that affects cost of prescription drugs within the employer market because the parliamentarian will say that is not about generating revenue for the federal government or spending provisions. Those are policy provisions, and that falls outside of reconciliation and therefore will not be reconcilable, and therefore you're not protected against a filibuster. And so apparently that is why they are looking at provisions that sort of direction because of those rules. But we still have concerns about, will there be an effect on the employer market? The other major provisions that we're looking at are around Medicare. And yes, they were the lowering the age, but there are also plans to expand vision, dental, and hearing. So we've seen a draft of the Ways and Means proposal. And keep in mind that this is just their ideas, that this will flip over to the Senate and they may reshape it. But the way it looks right now is that Vision would come online 
in October of 2022 and would have a 20% cost sharing requirement. And it would be a $20 million transfer from the federal supplementary trust fund to fund that. Hearing benefits would come online in 2023. And of course, another transfer from the supplemental trust fund of 20 million. But the real expensive piece of this is dental. And it won't come online until 2028. There will be a 20% cost sharing on basic services, including preventive services. And cost sharing for major services will phase in up to 50% by 2032 have benefits of two oral exams and two dental cleanings per year. Dentures and associated professional services will be furnished through a bundle and they will provide full and partial dentures once every five years, unless they don't fit. Isn't that something? If they don't fit, you can get new dentures, but otherwise it's every five years. And again, involves another $20 million transfer from the Federal Supplementary Trust Fund. So uh, that's the proposal so far on the table through the Ways and Means Committee. 2028 is still a long ways off. And so I'll be curious how the dental provisions continue as the process going forward. CMS has said it would take them about five years to set up a dental program. And this is partly because you need to get dentists into the Medicare program. That won't be quick. You need to get them certified. Furthermore, you have to get dentists to want to do this. There's not a lot of evidence that dentists are interested in doing this. The American Dental Association has expressed opposition to including dental within Medicare. And I think part of this goes back to what we've talked about in the past with Medicare is it does not reimburse at the same rates as private sector health insurance does. And so I think a lot of dentists fear that they won't be generating the same sort of income off of Medicare patients. And so I think this will be quite difficult. I also think from a sheerly political point of view, telling people that you've passed a dental provision that's going to give them dental insurance, but you're not going to get it until 2028, it's not really much of a win for most people. If you think of the average senior already on Medicare and telling them that they have to wait another seven years to get this benefit, I don't really think is going to consider it a huge win for a lot of seniors out there. So I will be curious how this provision goes as the process continues to be negotiated. As John pointed out, the House committees are all in the process of putting their sections of reconciliation bill together. This ends with the budget committee putting all the provisions together from the committees in one document, in one bill that makes more sense, that flows more logically and and can actually be used. At that point, we don't expect the House to vote on that document. People generally believe it will happen is the the House Democrats will take that document over to the Senate and begin those negotiations within the Senate to see if they can all agree on the same package and vote on one bill one time on reconciliation in the House and the Senate. Particularly the moderate Senate Democrats have no interest and the moderate House Democrats on voting on ideas that are more progressive if they're not going to be able to be passed into law. And so I think there's really a great effort that's going to go on in place here is to see, okay, Senator Manchin, Senator Tester, Senator Sinema and others, what do you want to see passed? What can we all agree on? How can we get all these votes? And that will be the final version of the bill. But this week and next week, we'll continue to see all the committees 
uh, mark up these bills. The Ways and Means pieces are the first out that we've seen. We expect to see energy and commerce pieces in the next coming days. We've not seen those yet. That will explain sort of the ACA subsidies and sort of how some of these other sorts of uh, the Medicaid expansion will actually work. Or are we going to take the ACA subsidies down? Those will all come out of energy and commerce in the next couple of days. We're recording this on Wednesday, September 8th. And so we hope to see some um, provisions coming down the line that might give it a little more clarity. But we talked about even if the House Energy and Commerce and Ways and Means and Ed and Labor Committees come out with their health care provisions, still left up to be negotiated with the Senate. And in fact, a lot of those discussions are taking place now to see what's amenable to the Senate side to help save some time. I've heard that the Education and Labor Committee is going to mark up on Monday. It's what we were told by committee staff. They are moving quickly. And uh, the plan is, is, as Chris said at the very beginning, was to you know, tie these two things up because rapidly at the end of September comes uh, the debt ceiling and, and other issues. So they have quite a bit. What I'd like to say here is, you know that NEHU has a lot of other priorities that we're working on. And so what does that mean for them? Well, I think if they can clear the decks of these issues that they're working on now, at the end of the year, there's always uh, tax extenders and uh, you know usually an end of the year package. And that's where we hope to get some of our bipartisan priorities done there, like observation status and, and COBRA's credible coverage. It is now time for the NHU Healthcare Happy Hour Toast of the Week. What are we toasting to this week? This week, we're toasting to remembering the 20th anniversary of September 11th. I still remember the days that I was working on Capitol Hill, and we had the television on and saw the first airplane crash into the World Trade Center. We will never forget those that were lost on that day. NHU commemorates all of those who have lost people on September 11th or the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq after that. Cheers! Thank you for joining us for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour, the official podcast of the National Association of Health Underwriters. For more information on NAHU's government affairs efforts or to become a member, visit NAHU.org.